Sorry, one more time. Good morning, church. All right, it's good to see you. It is uh, good to have each and every one of you here today. Uh, we do have some folks that are traveling and a little light today. My wife in, among them. Uh, she is in Yosemite or on her way home actually right now from Yosemite with several of her sisters that were there the last few days. We have uh, Keith Goodrich and his wife Janet. Keith's one of our elders are in Israel right now. What an awesome place to be. If you haven't been there yet, to be able to go to these places that we read about in Scripture, it is just an incredible thing. That's where they are. And then maybe there's probably more that are traveling, but one more that I know of and ask for prayer are Robert and Sarah Payne. Many of you know them. If you don't know them, Robert and Sarah have recently really felt a call from God to make disciples in the various homes we have around here that folks who are in their last years of life are living in. And they are, Robert especially, going to be making disciples there and also those who don't have a home to live in, those who are living outdoors. You may, if you've traveled through the DeWitt Center this week, you may have noticed a bunch of those folks who are living outdoors. They've relocated them into more of the core and center of the DeWitt Center. And uh, as far as I could tell, that all went uh, pretty well. But Robert and Sarah are going to be ministering to those two groups of folks, and they are in Pennsylvania right now. Uh, getting some training, and he texted me this week and just said, hey, share that with the body and, and ask them to pray for me. So pray for Robert and Sarah, and we'll look forward to seeing these and others uh, back with us uh, next week. Well, transitioning now to our text and our sermon series. Uh, for those of you that haven't been here the last few weeks, uh, the primary human subject that we've been looking at is Hannah. And Hannah, this woman... This godly woman has experienced years of emotional pain and suffering in her life. Her desire, her longing in her heart was for children, and she had no children year after year after year. Compounding that pain, her husband marries another woman who has children, and that woman tortures her verbally year after year after year. It is a difficult life that Hannah has lived. She often ends up weeping when her husband's second wife, Penina, uh, would criticize her and ruthlessly come at her. But instead of giving up, instead of walking away from God, instead of uh, becoming the wild child, or instead of becoming a workaholic, or a foodaholic, or an alcoholic, all of these things you might understand with someone who has experienced the level of suffering that Hannah has. Instead of going in any of these, seeking some sort of God substitute, Hannah chooses to seek the face of God. Year after year after year, not having the life that she wants, not having any children, and having this other woman, just more than a thorn in her flesh, just a constant source of torture and agonizing emotional pain. In the midst of that, she chooses to seek God's face through prayer and fasting. And then finally, after many years, she gets to this moment, this is a review for most of you, but if you haven't been here, this is what we've been looking at the last few weeks. She gets to this moment in her life where she's led to make a vow. 
And she, she prays a bold prayer, and she says, God, would you give me a son, please? And if you will give me a son, God, I will surrender him to you. Please, God, give me a son. And her idea of surrendering her son to him was a very literal one. In those days, Israel didn't have a temple yet. They had a a tabernacle in Shiloh. This was the main centerpiece where Israelites would travel at least once a year to worship. And she makes this prayer and she says, God, if you would give me a son, I will surrender him to be a priest. And I will leave him in Shiloh. And after she makes this vow, she has this incredible spiritual breakthrough. Eventually, she does have a son. We'll talk about that more in a little moment. You know this son. His name is Samuel. It is the person for whom the book of the Bible that we're in is named. But today, in today's chapter, we're not entirely sure who wrote for Samuel. Samuel, Samuel himself probably wrote some of it. But whoever wrote it, he, he puts in contrast these, these wicked sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who are priests, in contrast with this boy Samuel, this, this boy that has been born to Hannah after years and years of struggle and challenge. So we're going to see four lessons, four points in today's passage. Hopefully you have your Bibles open or you have the text of Scripture in front of you or you grab your phone or device and you can just Google uh, 1 Samuel 2 and, and it will come right up there. And we're going to begin today looking at verse 12. So let's uh, get into God's Word and hear what He has to say to us through His Word today. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning with the passage that Don just read, verse 12. It says, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. I want to pause here as I often do and, and make some comments, a, a verse that we could just blow right by. Eli is this very elderly priest. And his sons are the main operational priests in Shiloh, in Shiloh, where the tabernacle is. And the text says they are wicked men and that they have no regard for the Lord. So these are professing believers. Not only professing believers, but these are, if you will, the the ministry leaders. These are the priests. These are the pastors of the day. We learn in chapter 1 and verse 3, their names are Hophni and Phinehas. So the people who should be the spiritual leaders of God's people have no regard for the Lord. That is, that means they live as though God doesn't exist. This is a bad situation. Are you tracking with me, church? Say say yes. I mean, the, the, the leaders of the church, if you will, of ancient Israel, of the people of God, They have no regard for the Lord or for who God is. So one of the things we take away from this is there are a category of people who profess to believe in God who have absolutely no regard for him. And they're in this category. And this is a really bad category to be in. It is a category that typified this time in the history of God's people, we're in the end of what, has, what, is often called to, what is often called as the time of the judges. And Judges 21 verse 25 describes it this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. We're about to get to the, a new period where Israel has kings. But this was before there was a king, 
and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what I want to land on you today, nothing that I've said, if you've been around the church a long time, nothing I've said so far is is maybe new, it's all refresher, but what I want to land on your hearts is this is describing the people of God. This isn't describing the world. This is describing Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the spiritual leaders, the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, are wicked men. So that's all from verse 12. Let's come back to our text um, and look at verses 13 through 15. Now, it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So let's pause here for a moment. So listen, if I just read this scripture and we had a benediction, everyone would probably be going, what is going on here, right? I mean, this is, do you need some background for this? I think most of us need some background for what's going on. You could read this paragraph and really not have a clue what it is trying to say. So let me just kind of summarize first before I give you the details of what is this paragraph trying to say. What this paragraph is trying to give details to If you were an ancient Israelite and you read this paragraph, you would just be in shock and awe of the complete disregard to the prescriptions that God has given to how animal sacrifice is supposed to go, how worship is supposed to be done. There are very specific details in God's word about how this is supposed to happen. And Hophni and Phinehas have completely discarded them and put themselves front and center. So this is just completely outrageous what is going on. That would be your understanding if you were an ancient Israelite reading this text. You would be familiar, for example, with Leviticus 7.31, which says the priest shall burn the fat on the altar. This is the first thing to be done. There's this principle all throughout the Bible that we give God our first fruits. We give him the first thing, the best thing. We don't give them our leftovers. We don't just like, okay, well, I have enough money. I've paid all my other bills, and I'm going to give this to the Lord. Or, you know, if you were an ancient Israelite, you don't look for the animal that is the weakest and most, and most deplorable condition, and that's not the animal you sacrifice to the Lord. You look for the healthy, the best one, the one that you would want to keep the most. That's what you are to give to the Lord, and that is the principle of these sacrifices that are supposed to take place. And it's very detailed what the priests, Aaron and his sons, you know, the sons here concluded uh, categorically would include Hophni and Phinehas. In other words, if you're part of the priesthood, there's certain parts of the animal that are set aside for you to eat, including the breast. But first it goes to the Lord. And so these guys have just completely disregarded that. Why? Because they have no regard for the Lord whatsoever. So imagine you're just you're a true believer, you're going up to worship, and these are the pastors or the priests, if you will, that you're giving your offering to. So how did it go? Let's come back to our text and see what happens. So if the man said to him, in other words, 
the father, the head of the household who comes up with the, with the animal, if he says to him, let the fat be burned up first, verse 16. In other words, let's do what God said in his word. If that is said, and then take whatever you want, which even that is a compromise because the priests aren't supposed to take whatever they want. They're supposed to take certain portions of the animal. But this, this is a supposed worshiper who would be trying in some semblance to honor what the word of God says. The servant, that is the servant of these wicked priests, Hophni and Phinehas, would say, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. I mean, this is a a bad situation that is going on. Verse 17, the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. They were not only treating the Lord's offering with contempt, but they had no regard for God whatsoever. So the first of four principles, the first of four points I have out of today's passage, the first one is that God expects his people to remain faithful to Scripture, to do what it actually says. The worshipers are are wanting to help the priests along, and hey, let's at least kind of do what we're supposed to do here. And they're saying, no, we're going to do exactly what we want. We're at the center of the universe We're going to do exactly what we want, and we're going to use physical force if you try to do it another way. This was a dark, dark time spiritually for the people of God. Now, as we read a passage like this, it has things to say to us, even if we are very far from the, and I pray that all of us here today are very far from where Hophni and Phinehas are, that I have no regard for God, I don't really care about God. My guess is most of you that are here today, the reason that you're here today is that you have some heart to love God, to know him, and to serve him. So what would he have us take away from this passage? And and one of the four things we have uh, for today is that we would be careful to observe what the scripture has to say for us as new covenant people, as Christ followers. So we are coming, we're kind of in a shift here in 1 Samuel as Hannah has been the main human subject, and now we're shifting to Samuel being the main human subject. And let's go back and just talk about Hannah again uh, today as we'll be moving on next week and not referring to her so much, but the last few weeks she's been front and center. And one of the things that has been front and center in Hannah's life is her prayer and fasting. And we've talked a couple of the last week about how Jesus assumes that his disciples fast. That is, Christians fast. Those who follow him fast. That is, that we abstain from food. So one of the takeaways from this passage would be, are there sections of the Bible that I'm completely ignoring in my own life, in my own worship? And I would have to say, for me personally, and probably for many of us here, fasting is one of those things that we have perhaps ignored. Something that Hannah what was, was doing in a, in a powerfully demonstrable way. So I want to talk briefly before we continue to, through the text and go back to, to what Hannah did. Again, especially for those of you that weren't here a few weeks, um, let me reference uh, chapter 1 and verse 18. So Hannah, for years and years, has been struggling. And then in verse 18, she says, to the father of these wicked boys, to Eli, she says, may your servant, that's Hannah, I'm looking at verse 18, chapter 1, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way, and she ate something 
and her face was no longer downcast. Now this is a literary way to describe that Hannah has had a transformation in her life. When it says her face was no longer downcast, that's the way my translation has it. We could paraphrase that, that Hannah had a spiritual breakthrough. That she's been in a place of depression, to use our language. She's been in a place of clinical depression, probably, to use our language today. But that clinical depression, that depression ended. And notice when it ends. It didn't end when God blessed her with the son. It ended after, after a series of prayer and fasting. Her face is no longer downcast. And we don't have time to review it all, but the next few verses, it says in the course of time that she eventually gives birth to a son in verse 20. So she has the spiritual breakthrough that follows prayer and fasting, but it precedes by some time God actually honoring and answering her prayer. This is significant for us as we read a passage of people who completely disregard the word of God, and we need to ask ourselves whether it's about fasting or about other things, are there things in God's word that I have completely disregarded? Maybe not intentionally. I don't even know what to do or how to do it, or maybe it has been intentionally. So, one of the most common ways that we neglect to follow God is in this practice of fasting. And I would suggest if you're here today and you've never done it, and you're a follower of Christ, that you, you start with something very incremental, like just fasting from, from one meal. And then notice, Hannah, is, she, she's not fasting one day a week for her whole life, or she's not fasting for a season. Or she is fasting for a season. She's fasting for a reason is what I'm getting at. And so my challenge to you today wouldn't be just hear this sermon and go home and fast, but to think about, is there something going on in my life that I so desperately need God's help that I'm going to fast for that reason? That's what I would suggest, at least from this text, from 1 Samuel 1 and 2, why we might fast. Um, Scott... Uh, Scott McKnight wrote this in his book on fasting. He says, Fasting, along with our prayer request, is not some kind of magic bullet to ensure the answer we want. Fasting doesn't reinforce the crumbling walls of our prayers like a flying buttress, nor is it a manipulative device. We fast because a condition arises. So in Hannah's life, this condition arose. What was it? childlessness in a culture where having children was everything. What, what was the condition that arose for Hannah? She's got this woman in her house, a, a second wife to her husband who's having children and just bashing her all the time. And, and so that condition, it, this author is calling a sacred moment. We fast because a condition arises, what we are calling the sacred moment that leads us to desire something deeply. Hannah was desiring a son. We fast because our plea is so intense that in the midst of our sacred desire, eating seems sacrilegious. And so Hannah has this breakthrough. It is before God answers his prayer. It is through prayer and fasting. God is the one that fulfills and answers her prayer and brings joy to her heart. So all of that is from verses 12 through 17. Let's come back to our text, and the other three points will be um, briefer as is my normal custom here. So let's come back to the text, verses 18 and 19. So uh, back to th th these wicked guys, these wicked sons of Eli, 
Hophni and Phinehas are contrasted with Samuel. So we get the contrast here in verse 18. But Samuel. You know, all throughout the scriptures we have these but God or but Samuel. And here we have but Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy. Think of this. We would call him a little boy at this point. Is there a holy presence in Shiloh where the tabernacle is located? It is, and it's a boy named Samuel. It says he's wearing a linen ephod in verse 18, meaning he's wearing the priestly garment. Even though there's these wicked guys who are actually in the office of priesthood, God has selected and brought forward a son from Hannah to be a godly spiritual leader. He's just a boy at this point, but she has surrendered him, and he is there. He's not living with his family. He's living in Shiloh in a really pretty dangerous place, as we're going to read in a few moments. It's more dangerous than what has been going on. Verse 19, each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband. So every year they would travel and offer sacrifices as faithful Israelites, not as unfaithful or as professing faith, but have no faith. These are people who have faith, and they would go up each year with their husband to offer the annual sacrifice. So in verses 18 and 19, uh, we see that God values humans of every age, from conception to the end of life. And this passage is not about the conception or in the womb. We have a lot of passages that speak about that. We also have passages that speak about the end of life, This is where societies tend to um, have wicked relations with human beings when they're in the womb, when they're near the end of life. But here we have a passage where the emphasis is on a little boy, a little boy that God has raised up, and he is valuable. He is incredibly valued. He is the spiritual, the future spiritual leader, and in many ways the anointed leader in this uh, season and in this place where the tabernacle was located before the temple was built. Now, as we read the Old Testament, we want to connect it with the New Testament. So let me really briefly, you don't need to turn there, but you can. I'm going to read to you briefly from Mark 10, beginning of verse 13. Another passage about the value of human beings, in this case, children. Mark 10, verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. So here again, we have the spiritual leaders, the future spiritual leaders, the disciples, rebuking the people who are bringing children to Jesus. Why are they doing that? Because the worldview of the time was, you don't bother prestigious rabbis or the Messiah or the Son of God with children, only adults. But that's not what's going on. The people, we're not sure exactly who those people are. It doesn't seem like it's their parents. So it says people are bringing little children to Jesus have him touch them. The disciples rebuked them. Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God. So these children have received the kingdom of God. That means they believe in God. That means they fear God. They know he's holy and awesome and powerful. And and you adults need to be like these children who believe in God, who receive him simply. A child who has simple faith. We've all seen that, whether it's about God or it's something else, where children just have this simple and trusting belief in God or in something else. 
Verse 16, and he took the children in his arms, Jesus did, put his hands on them, and he blessed them. God values humans of every age, from conception to the end of life. The emphasis here is on young ones, on on little children, on a boy named Samuel, who is the spiritual leader. The readers know, the the spiritual leaders, it looks like they're Hophni and Phinehas and, and their aging father, no, the real spiritual leader at Shiloh is Samuel. All right, let's come back to our text. Verses 20 and 21 is where we are. Verse 20, Eli would bless Elkanah, that's Hannah's husband, and his wife, referring to Hannah. Now, it's interesting, we never hear in the rest of the Bible about the other wife again. Not sure what happened to her, but we never hear of her again, Penina. So Eli would bless Elkanah, And his wife, Hannah, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. Verse 21, And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. This young boy is outside of the home, living in Shiloh. But God has blessed Hannah. She asked for a son. And now she has, in addition to that son, three sons and two daughters. This is many, many years after her season of anguish and prayer and fasting, where she has ended that fast the way that she was fasting, and God has blessed her tremendously. Number three, lesson three from this passage. Sometimes God blesses beyond what the believer asks. And our God wants us to ask him for things. You know, you're not spiritual. Sometimes we might think, I'm more spiritual because I'm not going to ask God for this. God wants us uh, to not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition to bring our requests to him. And Hannah was doing this. Now, years and years and years went by, and, and there was no answer. But finally, he does answer. She has the spiritual breakthrough before he answers. And now the reader sees that God has blessed way beyond what Hannah was asking for. Coordinating this with the New Testament, Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory. This is the God that you and I serve. This God who can not only answer our requests, but can go above and beyond, abundantly more, than what we ask or think for or ask for or think about. How has God, how has God far more blessed you than what you have asked for him? You know, if we had a different setting and more time today, we, this would be a good time to have testimonies about what God has done, how I was praying for this, and here's how God answered And he went above and beyond what I asked for, and here's how he answered. I'll share one briefly with you. Um, Several of you have been praying for me as as my dad has moved here uh, from Texas. It's been a difficult move, a a difficult time. He's having trouble walking. And yet, uh, this week, my dad makes it to the driving range to watch his grandson hit balls, and he even hits a few balls out there. My dad makes it uh, to Del Oro Stadium to watch his granddaughter play in the Prouder Puff football game. It was just a beautiful thing. 
wasn't anticipating these sorts of events as he's having trouble walking. God has done far more than what I have asked of him. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes God blesses beyond what the believer asks. This is what Ephesians 3 tells us, and this is what this passage tells us as well. Let's come back to our text here and finish up. We've made it through verse 21. Let's pick it up at verse 22. It says in 22, Now Eli, who was very old, so this father is passing from the scenes. He's, he's very near the end of life. He's very old. What a terrible way to go out. But this is in God's providence. Sometimes his providence is bitter. Here's how he's going out. He's heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, so he says to these wicked sons, the reader knows that's who they are, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. How painful that is for a father. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people, among Yahweh's people. Again, take note, reader, this is not the sins of the world. These are the sins of professing believers we're looking at. If a man sins, verse 25, if a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, who will intercede for him? Let me pause here for a second and, and just kind of paraphrase what this old father is saying um, to his sons. When, he, when he, he, he draws a line here kind of between when you sin against someone else and when you sin against the Lord. If we go back, unlike the new covenant, the old covenant, ancient Israel, very specific laws about everything. And you're going to, as a believer, you're going to upset other believers. And so here's, here's when you upset them, when you sin against them, there's all kinds of descriptions on how to deal with that. So here's just one of them I, I pulled out for us today, Exodus 21. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit, he gets his backhoe out, he's dug a big hole, and he doesn't cover it, okay? That's how you, that's how you don't love your neighbor. You're supposed to cover that thing up. You don't cover it. And an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. You get to take care of the dead animal, and you pay the guy whose animal fell in it, and this is how you're supposed to work this out in, in God's community in ancient Israel. What Eli is referring to here, back to our text, when he says, if a man sins against another man, he's referring to stuff like that in the Old Testament. That there's mediation for you. That there's a way to make things right. There's a way to outwardly repent of what you've done wrong. But if a man sins against the Lord, what he's saying here is you have no faith or regard for Yahweh. There is no hope for you. The greatest sin really is unbelief. That is the greatest sin. You don't really believe in God, sons of mine. That's what he's saying. So there's no little prescription for that, how to deal with it, how to, how to effectuate your repentance. Because you don't even care about God. Your God is yourself. So this is, in his last days, what Eli is dealing with. This is tough. All right, let's finish up our text here. End of, we're in the middle of verse 25. 
His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was Yahweh's will to put them to death. These were unbelieving people. They chose not to repent. They chose not to listen to their father. They chose not to do what the word of God said, and so they received judgment. Verse 26, this is, this is the good news here. And the boy, this is kind of like, but Samuel, but God, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with Yahweh and with men. So our focus as we move forward is going to be on Samuel. Samuel. The final uh, point we have here, uh, the fourth of four points today, is God expects the world to be worldly, and he expects his people to be holy. One of the takeaways from this passage is not to look at the world and say how evil it is, but this passage is emphasizing how evil the professed people of God are. And the people of God are called to holiness. Jesus died not only to save us, but to make us holy. None of us are perfectly holy. We're all works in progress. So we have that declaration with humility. But this is the final point and lesson I want us to see. And let's just coordinate this with the New Testament, and then we'll wrap up this truth that the world is worldly and the church is holy. We're linking this passage here with 1 Corinthians 5. Look at it on the screen with me. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So just really briefly here, there was a, there was a, a Corinthians, if you will, a zero Corinthians uh, a letter that was lost, that was not part to, intended to be part of Scripture, that Paul wrote. We don't have that letter. And in that letter, Paul said, don't associate with immoral people. And the Corinthian church misunderstood what Paul was saying in that letter. So he clarifies, and he says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Well, why didn't he mean that? Well, because God expects worldly people to be worldly and to be immoral. But he doesn't expect those who profess faith in God to be immoral and worldly. That's what we see in today's passage, and it's what we see in 1 Corinthians 5. So I didn't mean don't associate with immoral people. That is, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those who are part of the LGBTQIA community. I didn't mean don't associate with them. What I'm saying is don't associate with those who profess faith in Jesus, but they are covetous. They're swindlers, they're idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Don't associate with people who profess faith in Jesus, but they have no regard for Jesus and God's word. That's what Paul is saying. And then he goes on. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. That would be someone like Hophni or Phineas, if he is an immoral person or a covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What does that mean? That means that a local church should have no one in it who isn't longing to confess their sins. It doesn't mean that we've all arrived and we've got it together. We don't. But that we are longing. So when, when someone shows us, hey, this is what the word says, we say, God, help me to obey that. Help me to follow that. That's the spirit that God is looking for in us today. So God expects the world to be worldly. And, and Paul clarifies, I'm not saying don't associate with them. In fact, that's where Jesus associated and who he spent a lot of his time with. But don't associate with those who say, yeah, hey, I'm the spiritual leader. And by the way, I have no regard 
for God and his word. We desperately need to obey his word, the entire counsel of it, and we need his grace to be holy. Let's pray together and ask him to do that in our lives. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've taken broken and suffering people, people really discouraged like Hannah, people who are in the middle, people who are just doing really well, and you want to pour your grace out upon us and bless us, and you want to make us holy. You want us to love the things that you love, to hate the things that you hate. Lord, help us to hate unbelief in our own lives. Help us to hate pride. Help us to consider others better than ourselves. And help us, like Hannah, to seek your face, especially when there's some burden or some tragedy in our lives. Might we seek your face through prayer and fasting, and might we have the spiritual breakthrough like Hannah did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.